Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between pornography and sex. I'm not opposed to pornography, but if your entire sex life consisted of looking at porn, you'd be going around pissed off and grouchy the whole time because you didn't evolve to masturbate over a screen, you evolved to have sex, right? Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello and welcome to It's Complicated the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. I'm Tanya Goodin, and each week I'll be talking to my guests about how they manage the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket. We'll be talking about how our phone habits affect our work, our lives and our loves, and about what our relationship with our phone might just tell us about our relationship with ourselves. If you want help and you want hope, you've come to the right place. This is It's Complicated. I couldn't be more excited that my guest to open the second series of the podcast is Johan Hari. Johan is an internationally best-selling author. His first book, Chasing the Scream, was a New York Times bestseller and is currently being adapted into a Hollywood feature film. His second book, Lost Connections, was a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller. And his TED talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong and the animation based on it, has had more than 20 million views. This episode is a little bit longer than usual because I just couldn't stop talking to Johan. I hope you find it and him as fascinating as I did. So you've written two books, one on addiction, Chasing the Scream, uh, and one on depression, Lost Connections. And I think for me, the theme running through both was connection. And the the quote that has been seen everywhere online from you is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. But recently, I read a statistic that 63% of UK adults want to put their phones down more. They feel overconnected. So if we're spending too much time on any form of addiction, your kind of premise is it's not so much the substance or the, the process, it's what's going wrong with our lives. Yeah, this was really challenging for me to learn about because we had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I didn't understand why then. But as I got older, I realised we had drug addiction in my family. And I had this very clear story about what was going on in front of me. Once I understood it, you learn from the culture this very clear story about drug addiction, right? 
And I think if you understand how that story is wrong, you can begin to understand something really fundamental about our tech addiction, our phone addictions. So I thought that the addiction in my family and in other people that I loved, because when you grow up with addiction, you tend to be drawn to that kind of thing, was was pretty straightforward. If you'd said to me when I started researching my book about addiction, Chasing the Scream, what causes, let's say, heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were thick and I would have said, well, Tanya, the, the clue's in the name, right? <laughs> heroin, heroin. <laughs> obviously causes heroin addiction, right? Yeah. Um, we've been told this story for 100 years. It's not totally untrue. It's important to stress that. But it's actually one small part of a much bigger bigger picture. So I would have thought if we'd stepped out of here and we kidnapped the first 20 people to walk past this house on the street and we'd forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month like the villain in a Saw movie at the end of that month they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason there's chemical hooks in heroin their bodies would start to desperately physically crave them and at the end of it they'd have an addiction problem that's what we think addiction is in fact that's why we call it being hooked right Mm. you hooks come along and then you, you you have this desperate desire for them and the first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about that is when it was explained to me by loads of doctors here in Britain, if you or me step out of here and we get hit by a truck, God forbid, and we break our hips, we'll be taken to hospital and we'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's much better heroin than you score on the council estate around the corner because it's medically pure pure heroin, right? It's not contaminated. It's the most potent form you can get. If what we think about addiction is right, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals being exposed to these chemical hooks. If anyone listening to this has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your nan's taken loads of heroin, right? Mm -hmm. If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused primarily or entirely by the chemical hooks, some of these people should be leaving hospital and trying to score on the streets, right? This has been studied quite carefully. It virtually never happens. I remember when I learned that, just thinking, that can't be right. How could you have a situation where you've got someone lying on a hospital bed who is being given really strong heroin for quite long periods of time and they don't become addicted and then you've got someone in the alleyway directly outside using a weaker crappier form of street Mm. heroin and they do become addicted what's what's going on and i only began to understand it and as i say i think this leads to a real breakthrough in understanding our tech addictions when i went to vancouver to spend time with an incredible man called professor bruce alexander did an experiment in the 70s that's really transformed how we understand these things. So Professor Alexander explained to me this story we've got in our heads that addiction is caused primarily or entirely by the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a little bit cruel. You take a rat, you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself by overdosing within a couple of weeks. So there you go, right? That's that's our story. That's proof. <laughs> exactly. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that a rat needs to be happy. Nothing that a rat wants in life. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, uh, they can have loads of sex. Anything a rat can want in life, they've got in Rat Park. And and they've got the both the bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. Uh, and of course they try both. 
this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water very much. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So they go from when, when the rats don't have the things that make life meaningful, you have almost 100% compulsive use and overdose quite rapidly. And when they do have the things that make life meaningful, they do not become addicted, right? Now, it's more complicated for humans to ask what makes a human life meaningful. I was just going to say that because, you know, we're living in the Western world. We're surrounded by people. We're surrounded by food. We're surrounded by entertainment. Why are we getting addicted? Yeah, so everyone listening to your, your podcast knows that they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in trouble really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that's been building up a huge amount of scientific evidence since the 1950s that, that all human beings have natural psychological needs, right? Um, you need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose, you need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a stable future. There's a whole range of human needs that we have. And for my more recent book, Lost Connections, that I was really, which is about why we're having such a big depression and anxiety epidemic. I went and interviewed the leading experts in the world about what those needs are. I discovered there's actually scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety, which relate to these, these very basic needs. I, mean, I can give you some examples if you want. Mm, yeah, yeah, I do. <clears throat> So I'll give you, the, I think, the most obvious one, um, although many of the others are obvious once you know about them. Uh, we are the loneliest society in human history. Yeah, I keep reading this. Yeah, yeah. there's a study There's a study um, in the United States. We're just behind the Americans here in Britain on the loneliness league tables globally. But there's a study in the United States that asked Americans, how many close friends do you have? How many people know you? In fact, the exact question was, how many people know you well? And half of all Americans said, nobody, not a single person. When I read that bit in your book, I had to reread it because I thought I'd misread it. Yeah. I thought it can't be none. It must be one. Because yeah. you said a couple so of generations a, a ago. It's a different was, study. So yeah. there was, there was a, another study um, a couple of years before that that said, uh, asked people, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, asking that question, the most common answer was five. And today, the most common answer is none. Right. Mm. More people say none than any other option. Mm. And I spent a lot of time interviewing uh, the leading expert in the world on loneliness, an incredible man called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at Chicago University. And I remember John saying to me, you know, why do we exist, right? You, me, everyone listening to this podcast, why are we alive? One of the key reasons is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. This was like the superpower of our species. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, right? If you ever see a bee separated from its hive, um, it goes crazy, right? A bee doesn't make sense outside the context of the hive. And we are very similar. We've created this profoundly lonely society with these stories that we should do it ourselves and it makes us feel awful now i go through lots of solutions to this in 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 the book but that's an example of a basic psychological need that you can say exactly as you said tanya and, and lots of people and i used to say you know what do you mean we we're the best society ever right we've got and yeah. you can put it like this but look at all we've got right and i'm not discounting the things we've got lots of them are great and it's really fantastic that we have them this is not about dismissing those things but part of the problem is if you have a society that's giving people more, more material things, which is good, provided it doesn't go beyond environmental limits, which it is in fact doing, but 
in principle, it's good that people have things. If you create a society with more stuff, but that is less good at meeting people's underlying psychological needs, that will produce all sorts of problems, depression, addiction, and so on. And I think we can see tech addiction in, in this context. The, the, the core of all addictions is not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too mm. painful or, mm. or, or, or too painful a place to be or a place that isn't meeting your needs. So you see that in the, in the context of uh, mobile phone addiction. Why are we, you know, I think the average person now touch it, picks up their phone 126 times a day, even though most of us feel that's diminishing our life somewhat. That's a classic understanding of addiction. I think a lot of the debate around tech addiction, which is a really important debate, has focused primarily on the problems within the technology itself, yeah, right? Yeah. Instead of what's going on with us. Exactly. Yeah. And it's important to say there is something going on with the technology itself. It is designed to be, you know, to keep keep you glued to it. We, the, the cleverest people in the world in Silicon Valley are, are are priming us to do that. That is a really important debate. So not just like the chemical hooks are also real, by the way, mm. that there are hooks in mm. heroin that you will become physically crave. But they're just a relatively small part of a much bigger picture. And in the same way that with heroin, not everybody, as you give the example, the, you know, the women in the hospital, not everybody gets addicted. Yeah. Yeah. you would assume, wouldn't you, that with a device, not everyone would suffer. And yet, you know, as I just said, 63% of adults say they're spending too much time on it. Well, I had a really interesting experience. I wanted to think about this. So for, for my book, Lost Connections, I went to the first ever internet rehab centre in, in the world. You should totally interview the woman who runs yeah. Hillary Cash. She's at, what, Dr. Hillary Cash. They happened to really catch the first wave of this, right? But what was really interesting, so... They get all kinds of people there, but they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed with these multiplayer role-player games mm. like World of Warcraft, or now it would be Fortnite, although that didn't exist when I was there. And I talked to lots of these young men. I remember talking to Dr. Cash and her saying to me, you know, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games? Are they getting something out of it? They're doing it for a reason, right? She said to me, they're getting a lot of the things they used to get from the culture but they no longer get. They're getting a sense of a tribe, right? Because you're playing with other people, you're interacting with yeah. you've got a shared mission, right? Um, you're working together like you did on the Savannah. Yeah. Exactly. It's the closest we've got, yeah. right? You're getting a sense that you're good at something. We have a school system that particularly for boys does not make them feel they're good at anything. You get a sense that you're, you get what's called mastery. I'm going beyond what Dr. Cash said now, but mastery is where you feel you're good at something, right? Yeah. They get a sense they're physically roaming around. These are children who've been raised effectively as prisoners. They hardly ever go outside. Uh, the figures on this are absolutely shocking. But what they're getting, I think, is a kind of parody of those things, right? Speaking to a lot of these young men, I started to think that, in a way, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between pornography and sex, right? I'm not opposed to pornography. But if your entire sex life consisted of looking at porn, you'd be going around pissed off and grouchy the whole time because you didn't evolve to masturbate over a screen you evolved to have sex right and we all know the difference no one no one spends you know half an hour looking at porn and feels satisfied and valued and, and held the way you do after sex at least if it goes right and I think in a similar way this is the, so you've got to think about the moment when the internet arrives in our lives so for most people it's the late 90s the early 2000s I think I sent my first email in the year 2000 so it arrives in a landscape where, and this is why I think just blaming the tech is too simplistic, although it is important to debate the nature of the tech, and there are real problems with it, and real good things about it too. 
um, you've got to ask, well, what was the landscape in which this this technology arrived and appeared, right? A lot of the factors that I talk about in Lost Connections that have been proven to cause depression and anxiety were already supercharged. Mm. We were already a super lonely society, not quite as lonely as we are now, but we're already a super lonely society. We were already a society which had been told life is about buying things and showing them off, which makes people depressed. It's already um, a society where people were feeling controlled and humiliated at work, which is another big factor that causes depression and anxiety. And what happens is the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost, right? So you've lost friends, here's some Facebook friends. Yeah. You've lost status, here's some status updates. But it's not the thing we've lost. It, it, it's it's a simulacra of the thing we've lost. It doesn't, it's not to say it doesn't have some value. It does have some. I'm not, I'm not an Amish person. I'm not thinking we should get rid of it all. But Professor Cassiopo, um, that amazing expert on loneliness, who sadly, uh, tragically just died, actually. It's a terrible loss. He said to me, you know, gave me a good rule of thumb. He said... If the internet, if your internet, social media use is a way of staying in touch with people who you see offline. So if it's um, a way station towards actual interaction, yeah. it's, you know, the kind of interaction we're doing, we're looking into each other's eyes, then it's a good thing. If it's the last stop on the line, most of the time, something's gone wrong. And I think that's a really useful yardstick. And I think that's what's happening at the moment, isn't it? Because social media is replacing real world interactions and I guess through the podcast I've been trying to unpick the whole chicken and egg thing (laughs) which came first is it making us lonelier or as you just said were we going that way anyway and it's kind of accelerated I think it's the answer is both but I also think it's important to stress where you provide real world models of reconnection people are hungry for that they want that I'll give you an example of a one of the heroes of my book about depression is an amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington. He's a GP in East London. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him who were terribly depressed and anxious. And basically the only tool he had was to give them drugs, to give them chemical antidepressants. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some, you know, they give some people some relief and that's valuable. But he could see a few things. Firstly, that they just weren't solving the problem for most of his patients. Most of them did become depressed again. And also that they were depressed and anxious for perfectly understandable reasons. Mm. Like they were really lonely. So one day, Sam decided to try something different. A woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well later. And Lisa had been shut away in our home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. She'd been a nurse. She lost a job. She was just in a terrible state. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. Um, there was an area behind the, the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just scrubland where dogs would go and shit. Mm. And um, Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week at Dog Shit Alley. I'm going to come to because I've been feeling quite anxious. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people and we're going to find something to do together so we won't be lonely and we won't feel life is meaningless. And the first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. She vomited. But the group starts talking. They're like, what can we do? And they had this idea. These are inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. They were like, we could, te- we could turn this into a garden, right? So they decide to learn gardening. And they start to watch YouTube videos. They start to take books out of the library. They start to get their fingers in the soil. They start to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But they started to do something even more important. 
they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking for them. Go, hey, you okay? Do you need any help? They started to solve each other's problems. I'll give you an extreme example. One of the people in the program had been thrown out by his girlfriend. He was sleeping on the night bus. Everyone else in the group was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started pressuring the local council, Tower Hamlets, to get him a home. They, they succeeded. It was the first time any of them had done something for someone else in mm. years, and it made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. I remember thinking as I was spending time there, what we're in in this culture for a lot of people is the equivalent of those bear cages where you've only got, you know, you've got nothing in the cage except you've got this smartphone, yeah. right? Which yeah. gives you these... All the rats with the cocaine lace water. Exactly. Yeah. We are like the rats in those first cages, not like the rats in Rat Park, yeah. right? And in a cage where your psychological needs aren't being met, where you're humiliated at work or controlled at work, where you're really lonely and all sorts of other factors that I go through in Lost Connections, it's not irrational to turn to the thing that you've got that gives you relief, right? The solution to that is not to say, oh, you've just got to develop, build up your willpower to resist this thing, right? The solution is we need to change our environment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So... 
do we have to go and find our tribes? Is that essentially what you're saying? That we need to get off screens and go and make or remake those tribes that we used to have? First, I don't think we need to get off screens. I think yeah. we need to develop a healthy relationship with screens. And that's one of... Uh, so obviously the, the last third of Lost Connections is about solutions that I saw being pioneered all over the world to some of the causes of depression and anxiety. I would say that's one of them. But to, I'll talk about another one, if it's okay. The, the, yeah. Another one of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about that we know some forms of internet use make worse. So everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? As someone who could list the entire KFC menu, I don't say so with any sense of I love the bit in your book where you talked about the fact that KFC gave you a Christmas card. They did, you? it was a terrible moment. <laughs> There's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money, and status and displaying your money and status in this kind of shallow way you're going to feel like shit right that's not an exact quote from confucius but that is the gist mm. of what he said right but weirdly nobody had scientifically investigated this until an extraordinary man i got to know called professor tim casser who's at knox college in illinois i interviewed him a lot and professor casser explained some really important things to me some things that really helped me because i could see how much this played out in my own life so Every human being, you, me, everyone listening to this, everyone you've ever met, is a mixture of two kinds of motive, right? So imagine you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy. That's what's called an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're just doing it because that's a moment in which you feel flow and meaning. Okay, now imagine you play the piano, not because you love it, but in a dive bar to pay the rent or because your parents are really pressuring you to be a piano maestro. That's what's called an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it because that experience is meaningful to you. You're doing it to get something out of it further down the line. And the pressure's coming from outside rather than the motivation from inside. Exactly. And of course, we're all a mixture of both, right? And that's a good and positive thing. All human beings should be a mixture of both. But Professor Kasser showed a couple of really important things. First thing he showed, if your life becomes dominated by these extrinsic motives, which I think are a bit like junk food when it gets to that level, if you're living, because you're constantly thinking about how you look to other people, because you're thinking about your status and showing off, you are significantly more likely to become depressed and anxious. He also showed, as a society, as a culture, we have become much more driven by these junk values, by these mm. extrinsic values. I mean, Donald Trump is, I don't mean this is a cheap point, Donald Trump is a very obvious example, an expression of that shift, right? Yeah. A man who is constantly bragging about, you know, the, his crowd sizes, how much money he has, constantly inflating them, in fact. You know, a person who assesses everyone according to their external worth. And you can see he's one of the most unhappy people you can ever imagine, right? I don't think I've, I've rarely seen a more unhappy person than Donald Trump. And of course, we can see this in relation to the internet, right? Yeah, he social spoke... media is all about that, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the very first time I, I interviewed Professor Kasser, thinking, isn't what he says kind of obvious, right? Like, everyone knows they're not going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the shoes they bought and all the likes they got on Instagram. You're going to think of moments of love and meaning and connection. But actually, he said to me, I'll never forget this, he said, yes, but we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. Hmm. You know, more 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own full name, their own surname. From the moment you're born, you're immersed in this culture 
in a machinery that is designed to get you to seek happiness in all the wrong places. And uh, there's, a, there's a really interesting little experiment. This was done before Professor Kasser, but I think it just reveals this perfectly. You get a bunch of five-year-olds and you split them into two groups. And the first group is shown two advertisements for whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer was in 1978. I can't remember what it was. And the second group is shown no adverts. And then all the kids are told, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a really nasty boy who's got the toy from that advert, or you can play with a nice boy who's going to be really fun but doesn't have that toy. The kids who had seen the advert overwhelmingly chose the nasty boy with the toy, and the kids who had not seen the advert overwhelmingly chose the nice boy who didn't have the toy. So just two advertisements primed those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of connection, friendship, and fun, right? There's this incredible quote, and this is a bit of a cheap point, but I think it illustrates it well. It illustrates why these junk values, one of the reasons, there's many, why these junk values make us less happy. In 2009, Melania Trump went to speak at NYU to the students. I can't imagine why. Back in 2009, yeah. I know, it seems like (laughs) in those happy days before the apocalypse. And one of the students asked her, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And Melania Trump replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Good answer. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a perfect expression of both junk values and why those don't make us happy. Because think about what that reveals. It means that Melania Trump knows if tomorrow she lost her looks. That would be it. You're out, right? Mm. And Donald Trump knows if he loses his wealth, status and power, she's out the door, right? So you can see it's one way of many ways in which junk values make us feel worse. And I go through lots in the book. But you can see how that would make... As your life becomes more dominated by junk values, you're more insecure, literally insecure, because the things you have are contingent upon your status and the appearance of success, success defined in a very narrow way as well. And I think we do talk sometimes in our culture about feeling jealousy and envy. I think what we don't talk about is a harder thing, which is very related to these junk values, which is living in a way that is designed to make other people jealous and envious, right? Mm which is a slightly different thing. So you see this, I had the great good fortune uh, last year of, it was the last day of Elton John's residency at Caesar's Palace. And so I was there to kind of witness it, right? I was in Vegas doing something else, but I was really lucky to be there. And I would say a third of the audience did not look at Elton John. They're Mm. just holding their phones, filming it. And and I really want to turn to him and go, at first I thought, I misunderstood what's happening. I want to turn to him and go, no one wants to see your shitty video of Elton John, yeah. right? If you want to watch videos of Elton John, yeah, you can spend the rest of your life on YouTube watching. Looking at them, watching, yeah. amazing ones, yeah. But actually, they're thinking, well, why Why are they doing this, right? And this is not to criticise those people at all, because I understand where it's coming from. It's part of the logic that's been built up by the culture. They want to display to their friends that they have been at the Elton John concert, right? You can see the mistake. You miss being present for the moment to display to other people that you were present at the moment in order to make them jealous, mm. right? And it does, in fact, make them feel like shit, right? Mm. But it does presumably doesn't make you feel that good either because you've missed the experience of being present and enjoying the experience. So nobody yeah. wins. Yeah, you put that absolutely perfectly. I think that's <laughs> put it better than I did. I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really good illustration of how a culture dominated by those junk values actually makes everyone feel worse, right? We don't have to live this way. 
I think one of the most important things I learned is that these factors that are causing depression, anxiety and addiction, they're not ordained by God, right? They're not, of course, we're not get, ever going to get a perfect society. There's always going to be flaws in any society. But a lot of these factors, there are, in fact, solutions to them. And I've yeah. been to places where, there was, where they, in fact, solved these problems, right? Been to places that had huge addiction crises and ended them. That's a big part of what Chasing the Screams is about. I've been to places that had huge depression and anxiety epidemics and massively reduced them. That's a big part of what Lost Connections is about. That these things are not inevitable. And I think we, we misunderstand a few things about this. Firstly, we see our... Let's think about tech addiction specifically. We see our tech addiction as primarily an individual flaw, right? Yeah, yeah. Relate that to the obesity epidemic, right? Everyone knows obesity has massively gone up. And it's not that suddenly people got lazy in 1975, right? Uh, everyone knows obesity is higher in Kentucky than in Denmark. It's not that people in Kentucky are I've lazy. Got less willpower. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Or it's not that people in, in Kentucky have different genes to people in Denmark that much, right? What's happened? In Kentucky, there is a food supply system full of sugar and fats, and it's very hard to get out of that. You've got to have a lot of money to go to the top end of it. And it's impossible to walk or bike anywhere. In Denmark... They've got diets that are cheap, low in fat. Cycle everywhere, and walk you, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, go to Copenhagen, you, you can cycle. It's actually much easier to cycle than it is to, yeah. to to drive, right? So you can see this very individualistic way of thinking, which is like, so what's our primary response as a society to obesity? We say, well, here's a diet book, right? We're all about saying the problem's in you. Yeah. Actually, as a citizen, you can band together with other citizens and we can change the food supply system. So part of the problem is transferring all the responsibility on, onto the individual. Yeah. When in fact, the best strategy for the individual is to band together with other individuals and change the cage for all of us, right? Yeah. But I also think, particularly with depression, what we've done is we've told people this very oversimplified story, which is this is just a problem with your biology. Our biology has not changed in the last 30, 40 years. And yet I'm 40 years old and every year I've been alive, depression and anxiety mm. have gone up here in Britain. So there's something else going on, right? And that's the social and psychological causes. But if you're telling a story that's so dominated by biology, for addiction about the chemical hooks or depression about just it's a chemical imbalance in your brain, what that does is it tells people their depression and anxiety and the attempted solutions through things like tech addiction, that this pain you feel is meaningless, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. Mm. And the, I think the, the main thing I learned in all this research is these things, they're not, they're not malfunctions, right? They're signals. They're signals that for individuals, their needs are not being met in really profound and important ways. I like this quote, you need your pain. It's a message. We must listen to the message. That's one of the things that really leapt out from Lost Connections, that all of that is about pain expressing itself. Yeah. And, and it's our body saying something's wrong. Yeah, and I think what we've been doing as a culture is insulting that signal, right? We've either been saying it's a sign of weakness or we've been saying it's just a biological problem. I stress again, there's some biological yeah. components. And I think we need to stop insulting the signal and start listening to it because it's telling us something really important. There was a person who really helped me to think about this differently. You should totally go and talk to an amazing man, Dr. Derek Summerfield. He's a South African psychiatrist now based in London. And Dr. Summerfield, tell me this story that's really stayed with me. Because I really struggled with this adjustment. For, you know, when I was a teenager, I was 
I remember going to my doctor and saying I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. And I was told this very simplistic biological story. You've just got a chemical imbalance in your mm. brain. You just need to drug yourself. And the drugs gave me a little bit of relief for a while, but I remained really depressed. And for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose and I was in a pretty bad state by the end of it. And I was really struggling with reorienting my understanding of depression. And I went to see Dr. Summerfield to interview him, not as a patient. And he told me this story. In 2001, Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. They were like, what are they? So Dr. Summerfield explained and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like St. John's Wort or Ginkgo Biloba or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day, he stood on a landmine left over from the war by the, with the United States. And he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb. And after a few months, he goes back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extraordinarily painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back to the field you mm. got blown up in. The guy started to cry all day. He refused to get out of bed. He developed classic depression. This is when something was told by the Cambodian doctors. Well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense. It had causes in his life that were perfectly understandable. One of the doctors figured, you know, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, mm. right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for a, an antidepressant. She I gave me a cow. cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not weak, you're not in the main a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and practical support to get those deeper needs met. And notice what they didn't say. They didn't say to this farmer, well, it's it's not just a biological problem, but it's your job to sort it out, mm, right? Mm. They all need... got together. Exactly. Yeah. It was a tribe. Yeah. This is what we do when we're in tribes. We solve each other's problems. Every problem is harder to solve if you're an isolated individual. And every problem is easier to solve if you're part of a community of people. I find that really moving, actually, that story. Really <laughs> a moving. big part of what I'm asking in Lost Connections then is, right, what's the cow for us, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, we, we have to finish it. I could speak to you for hours. Um, but I, I do I want to finish that with that thought that if you if you could just say one thing to people listening, the people listening on their own, trying to battle with not being able to put devices down or with any other form of addiction or with any other, you know, thing that's helping them to escape from their lives, what would the message be? Well the heart of it would be your pain makes sense. You feel these ways for reasons. We can discover those reasons together. And we can solve those problems together. But I would just end, it might take me a few minutes, but if it's okay, I'll tell you a story about 
the people who taught me most, right? So as you can tell from our conversation, I learned a lot from scientists yeah. and doctors I interviewed all over the world. People who taught me most were a group of people who are not scientists and doctors at all. I'll tell you the story of who they were. So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous council estate in Berlin, a woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. Nuria lived on the ground floor and the sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday, so on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a housing project. It's a place called Kotti in Berlin. It's in Kreuzberg, for people who know the city. A really poor neighbourhood, like a council estate in Britain, where most hardly anyone knew anyone else. And it actually had three... Because it had been a poor area, and a kind of feared area. There were only three groups of people who really lived there. There were recent Muslim immigrants, like this woman, Nuria. There were gay men... And they were punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups didn't get along and no one really knew anyone anyway. But rents had been rising for this whole council estate. People were, everyone was pissed off. Loads of people were being evicted. People started to walk past Nuria's window and they were like, oh. They knocked on her door. They said, do you need any help? She said, fuck you, I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. She shut the door in her face. People started talking outside her flat. You might remember this is the, the summer of the revolution in Egypt, right? Someone watching it on the mm-hmm. TV. And one of them had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes into the centre of Berlin, Mitte, that goes through Kotti. So one of them had this idea. They said, you know what? On Saturday, if we just block the road and we protest, there'll be a bit of media coverage. There'll be a bit of a fuss. They'll probably let Nuria stay in her apartment. There might even be a bit of fuss to keep rents down for all of us because we're all struggling with rising rents. So Saturday comes and they block the road. And Nuria's like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. I might as well let them push me into the middle of the road. And the media comes. Nuria does some bemused interviews. The residents of Cotty do some bemused interviews. Bit of a story in Berlin that day. And the media go home and it gets to the end of the day. And the police say, OK, you've had your fun. Take it now. But the people who live there in Cotty said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a rent freeze for our entire council estate. Once we've got those things, then we'll take this down. But of course they knew the minute they walked away from the barricade, the police would just tear it down. So one of my favourite people in Cotty, an amazing woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of the punk squatters. Tanya wears tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winter. She's hardcore. Tanya had an idea. She went up to a flat and she had a, you know, a klaxon, those things that make really loud noises at football matches. She brought it down. She said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we get what we want. There'll be two of us at any time. If at any point the police come to tear it down before we've got what we want, let off the klaxon, we'll all come down and we'll stop them. So people start signing up to man this barricade. People who had never met and certainly would never have met. So Tanya, in a little miniskirt, gets paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim in a full hijab, right? And the first few nights they sit there, it's super awkward. They're like... We've got nothing to talk about. This is awful. And the nights go on. And they begin to talk. And Tanya and Nuria discovered they had something really powerful in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 from a village in Turkey. She had two little babies. And she was meant to earn enough money in Germany to send back home for her husband in Turkey so he could come and join her. After she'd been in Berlin for a year and a half, working every hour she could, she got word from home that her husband had had died. She'd always told people in Germany that he died of a heart attack, but sitting there 
in the cold in Kotti through the night, she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone in Germany. Her husband had actually died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya started to talk about something she never talked about. She had come to Kotti when she was slightly younger, actually, when she was 15. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family who hated that she dressed as a punk and loved punk. She'd come to live in a squat and she'd actually got pregnant almost straight away. They both realised they had been children with children of their own mm. in this place they didn't and understand. And they hadn't found each other before that time. No, and these pairings were happening all over Kotti. There was a, a young lad called Mehmet, Turkish-German lad, who kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. And he his shift was with this very grumpy old white German guy called Dieter who... Who said he, he he didn't believe in direct action because he loved Stalin, but in this case he'd make an exception. <laughs> and uh, Dieter started helping Mehmet with his homework. He started doing much better. These parents were happening everywhere. Directly opposite this this council estate, there's a gay club that had opened a couple of years before the protest began called Zudblock, run by a man I love called Richard Stein. Who, who to give you a sense of what he's like, um, the previous place he owned was called Cafe Anal, right? So it's, I always thought you wouldn't <laughs> want to have a sandwich from Cafe Anal, but it's a pretty hardcore. Gay club, right? And as you can imagine, when this opened, this is an area with a lot of very religious Muslims. Some people have been really angry. The windows have been smashed. When the protest began, Zublok donated all their furniture to the barricade. And after the protest had been going on for two or three months, they started saying, you know, if you guys want to have your meeting in our club, we'll give you free food, we'll give you free drinks. And even the kind of lefties at Kotti were like, look, we're not going to persuade these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for things so obscene I won't even mention them on your podcast it did start to happen as one of the Turkish German women there Neriman Manker said to me we all realized we had to take these small steps to understand each other and after the protest had been going on for nearly a year and they, by this time they had built a permanent structure in the middle of the road with a roof and doors it's actually really nice one day a guy turned up called Tunkai who it was in his early 50s, and it's clear when you meet Tunkai, he's got some, some kind of cognitive difficulties. He'd been living homeless, but he's got an amazing energy about him. Um, people just immediately liked him. He united everyone, and he started helping out. And after he'd been there hanging around for about a week, and people had clocked that he was homeless, they said, you know, you should come and live in this thing we've built, right? We don't want you to be homeless. Come and live here. So he started living in this place, and he became a much-loved part of the, the Cotty protest. And after he'd been there for about nine months, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers to sue them. And the police officers thought they were being attacked, so they arrested Tunkai. This is when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital, usually literally in a padded cell, for 20 years, He'd escaped one day, lived on the streets for a few months and found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin and he was shut away again. At which point the entire Cotty protest turned into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital and these psychiatrists are like, what is this? They've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years who no mm. one came to see. Mm. And suddenly they've got all these very camp gay men, these women in hijabs and these punks demanding his release. But one of the protesters, Uli Hartman, said to them, yeah, but you don't love him. We love him. He doesn't belong with you. He belongs with us. Many things happened at Kotti. They got Tunkai back. It took a while. He lives there still. Brilliant. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative 
to keep rents down across the whole city. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. But I remember the last time I saw Nuria, she said to me, you know, look, it's really great. I got to stay in my neighbourhood. I'm really glad. I gained so much more than that. Mm. I was surrounded by these amazing people all along and I would I would never have known. And I remember Neriman, one of the other Turkish women there, saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, um, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what we're supposed to call home is just our four walls. Um, and then this protest began and I started to call all these people in this whole place my home. And I realised that in some sense in this culture, we are homeless, right? The Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. And by that standard, in this culture, we just don't have a sense of home mm. that's big enough to meet our need for belonging. But the the main thing I took from Koti, I think you can tell I love these people. They're amazing. But in one sense, they are not exceptional. These are totally random people. The only thing they had in common was they happened to live near each other and they responded to this distress signal. And to me, this is so important because the thing I learned in Koti is this hunger for reconnection is all around us, right? It is everywhere. The, the one good thing about the fact that we have these depression and anxiety and addiction epidemics, and I would argue things that are related like the political crisis, these are distress signals, right? And, and the one good thing about that is, it, like when all the alarms are going off, it's hard to deny there's a crisis that needs to be solved. Mm. And, and, and the solutions are all around us. My book is called Lost Connections because I think we've we've lost these very fundamental connections all around us. But precisely because that hunger for those connections is deep in all of us, it's not like building some radically new, you know, persuading people of some radically new thing, right? It's persuading people to trust their own pain instincts, that your pain instincts that you're experiencing aren't just some biological malfunction. They're not a sign that there's something wrong with you. A Bengali writer Krishnamurti said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? If you are feeling anxious in a, in a culture where the most powerful people are Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, that's not a sign that you're, I don't mean that as a cheap political point, that's not a sign that you're crazy, that's a sign that you're sane. And that yearning for reconnection is so deep in us and is deep in everyone around us. And there's power in that, right? And the other thing that people in Cotty taught me is you are way more powerful than you think. Right? We live in this culture that tells us we're powerless or tells us the only way to exert power is through collectivism or online mobs where we scream at people and shame them and try to tear them down. But we have a positive generative power that's much harder to access online and much, but not impossible, yeah. but much easier to access when we are together and we see each other. And I can well imagine those people in Cotty would have screamed at each other if they were interacting on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. They were really different. They really don't agree, right? And they still don't agree on gay rights and loads of things. But when you love people and you know them and you see their eyes and their faces, those disagreements still happen. And rightly, and they should happen, right? It's important to debate these things. But it an argument happening in the context of love and physical presence is very different to an argument happening in a disembodied space where all the rewards are to be nasty and scream at each other, right? So I think, in a way, what I saw in Cotty was people building a rat park, and that's what we, yeah. what we need to do. 
I think that's the perfect place to finish. Thank you so oh, much. Thanks so much, And I should say, if anyone wants to hear audio of any of the interviews with any of the people we've been talking about they're on the lost connections website. yeah you need yeah. to go to so some of the the ones about addiction are chasing the scream yeah dot com it's scream as in ah jamie jamie lee curtis in halloween and the depression ones are at the lost connections.com and you can also find out on those websites I, my publishers gave me like a blurb that i meant to say at the end of these things right literally makes me sound like a psychopath but you can go if you want to know what elton john hillary clinton uh davina mccall matt haig and lots of other people said about the books or where you can get the audiobooks go to those those websites and you're on twitter as well aren't you but i know yes. you don't spend a lot of time on twitter but you're no. johan hari 101 i am you know i had this funny experience where at the end of an interview about a year ago it must be maybe a little bit longer now they were like so what's your twitter what's your instagram what's your facebook and i said them all and they said and what's your snapchat and i was like <laughs> i am a 40 year old man right the only 40 year old men on snapchat are certainly pedophiles yeah, and should be immediately be arrested exactly yes. so i'll go a long way to get my message out i will not snapchat that's a step too far exactly thank you very much thanks tanya thank you for listening to this episode of it's complicated If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.